Welcome to America's First Warriors, stories of today's airmen and guardians. In celebration of Native American Heritage Month, this five-episode series explores the stories of members of the Air and Space Force through candid conversations centering around their individual backgrounds and culture. By gaining a better understanding of the members of our total force, we become a more rich and ready team. I'm your host, Chief Master Sergeant Mark Legvold, Command Chief of the 133rd Airlift Wing, Minnesota Air National Guard. Joining me today on America's First Warrior is Tech Sergeant Annika Dexter. Sergeant Dexter is currently shaping the future of our Air Force as a military training instructor at the gateway to the Air Force, Lackland Air Force Base. She grew up, and you're going to help me with this, Annika, if I get it wrong. She grew up in Limbito, New Mexico. Did I get it right? No, it's actually pronounced a Yumbato, and it's oh. a, a small community on the Navajo Reservation. So, a Yumbato? A Yumbato, yes. Perfect. Thank you so very much. It's in the northwest corner of the state of uh, New Mexico on the Navajo Reservation. And prior to putting on her round hat, she worked in materials management and logistics. Welcome, Annika. Thank you. I'm so excited to be I- doing this today. I'm thrilled to have you on, and thank you again. I mentioned that you're from the Navajo Nation, which is pretty big. Would you mind, in your own way, introducing yourself? Oh, yes. Yat a shi'e anika dexter yinishia. Nahabani ninchlin senjinkene bushes chin. Tkobahe e deshiche. Tsenabitni e deshinele. Shema a Lucy Murphy wulye. Shijae a Vernon Murphy wulye. And my late father is Fred Martin. So basically, I just told you my first four clans. Uh, my name is Annika Dexter. I am of the Gray Streak Ends clan, born for the Honeycomb Rock people. And my maternal grandfather's clan is a Water's Edge clan. And my paternal grandfather's clan is a Sleep Rock people clan. And my parents are Lucy and Vernon Murphy. And my late father is Fred uh, Frederick Martin. Wonderful. Thank you. That seems like a long explanation that covers both your family history and a little bit about where your family is from. Am I getting that right? Yes. So I actually didn't um, realize that early on. Like, it's just something that like you're just taught to introduce yourself. And when people, when you meet people for the first time, they're just like, what are your clans? And you're like, oh, and you just spit it out so effortlessly. So I actually ended up going through on this random journey. So growing up, like my dad, Vernon, who I just introduced, I didn't know he wasn't my biological dad. So I found that out very young. And I was like on this search to find out who I am, found out who my biological father is and got back in touch with that side of my family. So I was able to properly introduce myself. But I never leave out my dad who raised me. And um once I found out my clans, then I could kind of trace it back to what part of the reservation that I'm from. So whenever I meet other people and we find out we're related, and then they'll be like, who is your paternal grandmother? And I'll be like, oh, Alice Todichi. And then they'll be like, oh, she is from Cornfields, Arizona. I'm like, yes, exactly. Right around Cornfields, Greasewood, the Ganado area in Arizona, like that part of my reservation. And then they trace it back to there. So it's kind of easy to tell where you're from. Yes. When did you start that journey of self-discovery? Once I was in high school. Uh, right now, okay, so yeah, when I was in high school, I found out where my grandma lived in Cornfields, Arizona. And I just popped up on her. <laughs> Literally just popped up. Found out like she were like I met her before when I was younger, but to once I was becoming my own person, I literally just went to my grandma's house in Cornfields, introduced myself, and she knew. Once I said my name and I was like, I'm one of Frederick's daughters, she was like, Annika, and she knew exactly who I was, who my mom was or is. And uh, yeah, I've just been going over there ever since. I was about 15, 16 years old when I started going to go spend more time in Arizona with my biological father's side of the family. Fantastic. And that that reunion must have been so heartwarming for the both of you. Was there a little bit of anxiety going into it, though? 
Oh my goodness. Whoop. What did you just say your question was? I'm so sorry. That's okay. So the meeting that you had with your grandma, um, that must have been really heartwarming uh, going into that. But was there also a little bit of anxiety kind of meeting somebody that you knew you were related to, but didn't really necessarily have that relationship with yet? Yes, because I didn't feel like I would be welcomed, but she didn't treat me any differently than all of my other brothers and sisters from that side of the family. I was welcomed immediately um, by my aunts and my uncles, and it was amazing. So I'm pretty close with that side of the family. I think that's wonderful. Family is something that's that's, uh, important to you. And I know culturally speaking, you just you just introduced yourself in such a, a lovely way using using your language. And I know you're you're a mom. Uh, how how are you passing your culture, your heritage along to your your children, your your eight year old daughter and your three year old son? So a lot of the stuff that my mom taught me, how my mom speaks to me, uh, the way my grandmother spoke to her and I pass that on to my kids. I let them know exactly who they are, where they come from, where half of them is from, because my husband's from Mississippi. And so I let them know all the time just that they're half Diné, they're half, they're half Navajo, they're from a reservation, they're from people, very resilient people. And I talk to them, I speak to them the way my mom spoke to me. And I let them know their clans. I'm actually teaching them how to introduce themselves in Navajo so they could, um, so they know exactly what to say, how to say it. It's an interesting journey. Um, I say little things to them in Navajo, stuff that my mom said to me growing up, and they understand it and they listen. So once I start talking sternly to them in Navajo, they know it's serious and they, they pay attention and they listen. It's like first name, middle name, last name. All in Navajo, they know they're in really big trouble, right? <laughs> yeah, and they just know like I'm being more serious and that they need to listen and pay attention to what I'm telling them or if I need them to just stop messing around and they got to behave appropriately. Indeed. <laughs> so growing up in New Mexico, you've traveled a little bit, um, been to South Dakota, you've been to Florida, now you're in Texas and San Antonio. And going from a small town to a big city, you're pretty far from home. How do you stay connected to your your culture and your family? That is a very good question. Yes, I've traveled. So I actually went to college before I joined the Air Force. I was at Arizona State. But I linked up with a bunch of other uh, Navajo kids from my reservation. We all didn't really know each other, but we were all there in a big environment. So we all just hung out together. Still. And I still talk to a lot of my friends from there to this day. But coming or joining the Air Force and being far away from home and not getting that luxury of just going home whenever I want to, um, I usually just call home, call home a lot, stay in touch with my family, and at least once or twice a year go home and feel grounded emotionally, mentally, and spiritually to where I'm from. So as soon as I'm... Yeah, so like the moment my husband and I, so we drive down I forty in New Mexico, going I forty west, and once we pass Grants, New Mexico, and I know I'm getting closer to home, I start feeling better and start praying and letting you know letting the holy people know that I'm home, like I'm here, I'm back, and I need to feel grounded. And and you get that sense of of sense of grounding just from that. Uh getting back to that home area. It's that sense of familiarity, isn't it? Yes, it is. That is correct. And I, and it never gets old. That feeling never gets old. I love being home. I love being surrounded by my family. And it makes being away, so far away from home, worth it. Yeah. When you first joined the Air Force, uh, going through basic training, now this is something, Annika, that you get to pass along all all throughout your job, that's your, your your career as a training instructor. But that that experience you had going through basic training, did you find a kindred spirit going through basic training? Kindred spirit. 
Were there other Native Americans in basic training with you at the time, or, or were you all oh. by all by yourself? No, I was I was by myself, and that was the first time in my life. I was 20, 20 years old, going about to be twenty one by the time I graduated basic training, that I felt alone. Honestly, I like I said, I went to school before I joined the Air Force, and I had all of these other uh, Navajo kids from my reservation. We all kind of knew where each other was from. A couple of people from my high school, so. I didn't, I never felt lonely. My older sister was at Arizona State with me. So if I ever just needed to feel home, I was surrounded by it. But being in basic military training for the first time, truly on my own, going to San Antonio, Texas, where I've never been before, and actually never rode a plane. So I'm on this plane going to basic training and it was scary. I get to basic training, and once once you start connecting with your flight, so all the sisters in my BMT flight, and we started learning about each other and everyone not knowing who, like, my trap, like, not knowing that Native Americans still exist, which was interesting to me. They were like, you know, you're the first Native American I've ever met, and I was like, oh, wow. And I was lonely. I was honestly lonely, and... Um, two of my very good friends that I made friends with in basic training, we were on laundry crew together. One was Korean and one was, uh, she was black and we, it was just the three of us. We always hung out together and they would always ask me questions and I would tell them, I'm like, I'm like, I so lonely. Like, I don't see anybody that looks like me. I like none of you know what I'm talking about. If I were to go into like my reservation humor um, I was very family oriented. Like I would talk about how much I miss my sisters, how much I miss my mom, my grandma. And just thinking about it, it's so emotional right now because of how far that I've come. So as an instructor and I see my trainees now, you know, I'm on the other end of it. And I see my trainees freaking out, shutting down. They're in a new environment. And I go back to how I felt when I was coming through basic training and try to pass on the knowledge that I've learned. You that mentioned that you're passing on to your kids that uh, we are a resilient people. That's something you said earlier, and that just kind of stuck with me. Have you had that opportunity to pass on to other Native American uh, future airmen, trainees, um, that you know they show up and now they see an instructor that looks like them? and you're able to give them that message. Is that something that you try to help them as they adjust? I do. I honestly do. I've actually had a couple of Navajo trainees, whether they were in, the, they were in my flight or in my squadron. Uh, just recently, uh, about a flight cycle ago, I was walking through, they call it Charge of Quarters to CQ Tunnel, and I was walking through my wingman. She pulls me aside, and she was like, I have a trainee that wants to talk to you. And I was like, are they okay? You know, immediately I'm like, are they okay? And she's like, yeah, it's, she's like, no, it's fine. It's just, um, she said that both of you, she thinks that you're both from the same tribe. She said she saw your car and you have a necklace on your rear view mirror and she really wants to talk to you. And I was like, oh yeah, of course. And my wingman, she was like, your tribe. She's like, I'm not really sure what that means. And I was like, oh, I was like, I'm native American. I was like, I'm from the Navajo tribe. I was like, so if she's Navajo, we're from the same tribe. I was like, yes, I'm more than happy to talk to her. And she was like, oh, okay. She, and then she tells me the dorm she's in. I go to the CQ box. I call her down. And um, I'm talking to her outside, outside the CQ tunnel. And I'm looking at her. And I said, I asked her, I was like, where are you from? So she tells me, she's like, Shiprock, New Mexico. And of course, like, we're in a training environment. And she has to say her reporting statement. So my wingman standing next to her. She's like, no, your reporting statement. And I was like, no, I get it. But right now, it's 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 not MTI, Sergeant Dexter right now. It's just Sergeant Dexter talking to a young Native American trainee who's on this journey that I've that I started as well or that I've been on. So I'm just like, no, it's fine. Stand at ease. Like, what's going on? And she's, I was like, are you okay? And she immediately starts tearing up. And I'm like, what's wrong? <laughs> or, you know, and then uh, then I go into like the mentoring, like big sister role. So the hat that I'm wearing changed. So I'm talking to her and I'm like, what's wrong? And she was just like, it's so nice to see you. She was like, 
I I'm like, I I know. I was like, I understand. I was like, are you okay? Like, how you been feeling? She said, and the first thing she told me was, it's lonely. It's lonely. And I completely knew what she was going through. Yes. And I just like looked at her and I back as young 20-year-old Annika Martin, training Martin, going through basic training and thinking the same thing, it's lonely. And I was like, it's going to stay lonely for a little bit. It is. I was like, but my name is Technical Sergeant Dexter. And when you, when we have that time, there's a time requirement where uh, trainees, well, airmen, once they graduate basic training, they have a time frame when they can get back in touch with us as instructors if they ever need to reach out. I was like, once you hit your time frame, you get to your first duty station, all that good stuff. I'm like, you can reach out to me anytime because I didn't have that representation that you're looking for. I was like, I didn't have it. And I'm more than willing to be that for you. I know exactly what you're going through. You're lonely. It's going to stay lonely. It's an interesting journey. And it's something that I don't regret doing. I was like, but I was like, I'm here. And if you ever need me, you can reach out. So we started talking about where we're from, our clans. And actually at that graduation, I got to meet her family. So once we graduated, we found each other. I met her family. I I met her mom. I met her grandma. And then that was at retreat, the coining ceremony. And then at parade, I got to meet, I met her mom and her grandma again, but I got to meet her sister, her sister, her oldest sister's in the uh, Navy. And then her brother, he's at West Point. So I got to all three of them. They're all in the military and I got to meet them and they were excited to meet me. They're like, you know, we, we haven't had this either. So for them to tell me that they haven't had the same representation that their little sister just got, you know, it was very eye opening. And I was telling my uh, one of my wingmen, his name is uh, Technical Sergeant Hill, I was telling him, I said, you know, I always looked for that representation and I just realized I'm the representation now for these young, like just Native American trainees in general. So when I carry myself, I have to carry myself differently and show them what we can do, how this resilience that has been passed down to us generation to generation and how our grandparents, our parents survived all of this generational trauma that we can make something of ourselves and we can heal and we can provide a better future and life for our families. So I take that very seriously and I've taken it um, and I own it now. I realize that I am that representation. I need to carry myself better and set a very good example. That is a, uh, a wonderful joy to be able to carry but is it heavy or or is it is it light oh my goodness so heavy or light carrying that heavy it's very heavy and I and I uh I think about it often because I don't want to be a disappointment to them. Mm-hmm. And I don't want them to think that they can sell themselves short. So it's heavy, but I'm going to carry it and I'm going to try and set the very best example for them that I can. Glad that you are. And and it's so fantastic that you are that person where you didn't have that person when you went through basic training. So back to that trainee, have they reached out or is it still in that time where they can't? It's still in that time that they can't. And from the AFSC that she was assigned, they have a pretty long tech school. So it's a it's a waiting game and it's fine. Like I just I just I just hope for all the good things, not only for just my Native American trainees, just all the trainees that I interact with daily or that I've trained. I just really want what's best for them. Yes, indeed. So she's that trainee is still going that airman now is going through oh. her basic uh military job training, her AFSC basic basically. It's your military job. And going through that, and I'm sure you know you carry that responsible or that responsibility. And yeah, it's heavy, but I'm sure there's there's joy to it. 
Let's put that in an operational context, though. Why? Why, why is the elimination of the barriers or the rep representation, especially of Native Americans in our military service, why is that important to the overall mission? How does it make us better? Ooh, that is... That is a very, very good question. Um, I think just appreciating all walks of life that serve. We come from everywhere, respect each other, we serve together, and we're all here to fly, fight, and win. And the only way we can do that and succeed as an Air Force is if we all respect all the walks of life that come through. We respect each other and we serve proudly together. And you get to be that, that strong advocate for not just the the values of the Air Force, but the uh the responsibility that you care uh that you get to carry or have to carry. Um you're a strong advocate for the Air Force and it's something that you're unabashedly, unashamedly, unapologetically, you know, strong Air Force character. You get to, you know, wear those stripes and develop our airmen. How did you get to be so passionate about the Air Force that we serve in? Yes, I'm very, I'm very pro Air Force. I preach Air Force to anybody that would listen to join. I'm like, it's very, it, it's been very good for me personally. I joined very young and I really only decided to do six years. I was like, I'm going to do my six years and I'm going to get out. Now here I You're am. I'm going, six years going now. on 12. I'm past six. Sure. I'm past six. I'm at 11. And it's go. done so much good for my life. Um, I met my husband. I have two beautiful children, um, have a very beautiful home without working vehicles, like all aspects of my life. I've met some amazing people. Some of my very best friends that I've met are all in the Air Force, my friends that have become family. Um, it's, been to, it's been good to me overall. And I had a really good first assignment with some amazing mentors that I met there. And I got to go to Eglin where I met more mentors. And that was a little hiccup in my career, but overcame that. And I finally got to come and do what I wanted to do my entire, since the since day zero, that first night at basic training. And I saw what an MTI is. I wanted to be one. So I'm finally here doing basically my dream job. Putting on that that hat and and raising the good airmen, and then on top of that, mm -hmm. being able to give them a sense of reality when it comes to that sense of aloneness uh, when they show up down down in Lackland, down for me. I'm in Minnesota, but uh, you know when they show up there and they have that sense of aloneness, and you're able to you know both give them the discipline and the guidance that they need to become good airmen, but also that that sense of you know, hey, we all wear the same uniform. We have standards we have to uphold, but your individuality can remain. How do you balance that? That's always been a question I've wanted to ask a, a training instructors. Balancing that, you are in the military now and we have standards, but you're still your own individual person. How do you teach them that, that there's a balance there? Or do you? So... For me, it's a little hard only because I'm at I'm at work a good a good portion of my day. So my trainees see me all the time. And uh as instructors now we have like these mandatory two days off we have to take. So I, every Sunday is a guaranteed day off and then we pick a day that works out between your um, your tap out, which is a person that's with you on flight, and then your teamies across the hall, so you and your stairwell, so y'all pick days off, and uh, we have a ten hour maximum shift that we can work, and I max out my ten hours every single day. 
from the very first pickup night till they graduate. I max it out. So I don't really know if I have a good balance yet. Um, I kind of just throw myself into whatever I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just have a passion for it. I'm very passionate about my job. I'm passionate about my home life. And teaching them to have that balance, I kind of just, I don't know if that's bad if I say I fake it. Mm -hmm. I'll be like, if I can do it, you can do it. And we're going to figure this out. And we just, we keep on moving and keep on pushing. So it's kind of, it's hard. Yeah, it's really hard to like explain my, if I do a good job balancing my work life and my home life or all the many different hats that I wear. And there's so many hats that I wear and I have to rotate them effectively. It's, it's part of that balance that we all have to work on achieving and it's, it is a struggle and I, I jumping wholeheartedly and showing that you have a passion for what you're engaged in is, uh, I think that's what makes you a great NCO and a, a perfect role model for the young folks coming into basic training now. So I appreciate that. It's really, yeah, like I said, it's hard, passionate, and just literally just leading from the front, Yeah, leading by example. Well, I'm going to ask you to lead a little bit here. So we're celebrating, um, we're celebrating Native American Heritage Month this November. Why is that important? And what's the most important thing that non-natives like myself can take away from a month of celebration? One, I am very big on that we still exist. Native Americans still exist. The indigenous people of this country, the very first ones, we still exist. We are still here. There are over 350 federally recognized tribes and we all are still existing to this day, despite residential school trauma, despite our country's history. And we are serving right along everybody and in the military. doesn't matter what branch you're in. We're here. We're serving right along with you. A lot of us are serving because we had family who served before us. Um, and we all have our own cultures, our own languages, and our own stories. And all of the stuff that we have individually from our individual cultures and tribes, like we trying so hard to preserve it and passing all of that on to our children and the future generations. Yeah. The, um, the statement of we are still here and um, despite generational trauma and despite uh, all of the historical uh, things that we have gotten wrong. Are we getting it right in your eyes? Are we are we getting better? There has been a lot of improvement, but there's still more that can be done. And I really, yeah, there's so much more that can be done. Um, and that's all I can say coming from, you know, someone who is representing the Air Force right now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So what's your hope for the future when it comes to our diverse Air Force? Respect. Um, this was. This is a very. This is a very very specific example for me specifically. Um, Christopher, like what people refer to as Christopher Columbus Day, and a lot of states have in, have changed it to Indigenous Peoples Day. So people have a have a. They feel a way about it. About how they've changed it, mm -hmm. and. I had an incident where, you know, I'm just, I was like, oh, we have a holiday weekend. And the individual I'm talking to was like, yeah, it's Christopher Columbus Day. And I was like, you know, actually, it's Indigenous Peoples Day. And he was like, and he looked at me, he was like, oh, I'm still calling it Christopher Columbus Day. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I was like, but you know, I'm Indigenous. And he kind of like looked at me, he was like, oh, well, I learned as Christopher Columbus Day and he just carried on. And I was like, cool. So, you know, respect for the things that people try to teach you about. And I and I try to use it as a teaching moment, but there's some stuff where I was just like, you know, it's fine. You can go ahead and continue to say what you want to say. But as an indigenous per person of this country and who's serving right along you with them, right along you, you could hear me out. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's just that. Just honestly, just respect. Just respect of cultures, respect of individual individuals. And at the end of the day, that's all it comes down to. Absolutely right. The relationships that we have with one another, even though it's a big military and a big air force, is what makes us so much more effective in what we do and the respect that we we are able to to build with one another by just hearing hearing people's stories. Um, okay, so you're a mom. You're raising you're raising two kids, and one of the things that you mentioned your your mom's cooking is one of your favorite things, and she makes potatoes with spam that's a thing it is so (laughs) yes that's one of my favorite dishes and my mom would always make potatoes so she would like slice up the potatoes dice up the spam and she'd always make fresh hot tortillas and honestly my mom is the best tortilla maker in our family like one of my uncles he lives in north dakota so whenever he comes home that's like the first thing he asks for is for my mom to cook and make bread but it's to the point to where like um my kids that's their favorite dish as well so if you ever ask them we're hanging out at the house and we're like what do you want to eat they're like potatoes with spam and i wish grandma was here to make her tortillas <laughs> heck of a deal well annika i'm going to just tell you that a mere 50 miles from where I'm sitting in Minnesota, the Spam Museum exists. You're welcome There's... to come on up and visit. There's such a thing. <laughs> I was like, that's Spam Museum. And it's and it's so funny because like all of my friends that are from different that are from different tribes and different parts of the country, they're like, You eat spam? We eat spam too. And I'm like, Yeah. And one of my really good friends, he's Korean. He's also an instructor. He's a military training instructor too. I met him and we we're talking about the different dishes we grew up eating. And I was like, Yeah, don't make fun of me, but like, I eat a lot of spam. He was like, We love spam. And it's something that we kind of bonded on. So it's so funny <laughs> when I bring up spam and it's like, and people can connect over spam. Oh, isn't it something? Well, like I said, the museum is, it's just down the road from where I'm at. Who'd have thought, right? Right. And I was just, you know, I was in South Dakota. We were pretty close. Had no idea that existed because I definitely would have made my husband take me. <laughs> but it's short drive right down I-90 and you would have been right here. Oh, yes. I-90. Opportunity missed. Hopefully you get stationed back in South Dakota or North Dakota and you can just roll out, roll right on through Minnesota and come visit Austin and uh, hit right the Spam Museum. <laughs> uh, if you're lucky. <laughs> Um, that would I, that would be that would be an interesting trip, but yeah, probably worth it. <laughs> absolutely, it's part of our culture here in Minnesota that we're happy to share with the rest of the world. <laughs> Annika Dexter, thanks so much for sharing your story, and thanks so much for the the growth and the uh, the the wisdom and that sense of of uh, you're not alone that you get to share with our newest airmen. Yes, thank you for having me and letting me share a little piece of my story, a little piece of my heritage, and definitely talking about my mom's tortillas and her cooking. Absolutely. <laughs> well, we, we certainly do appreciate it. Thanks for joining me on America's First Warrior. I hope you stick around for the next session of this episode where we get to meet uh, Tech Sergeant Roger Duran. Thanks again, Annika. It's been a pleasure. All right. Thank you. Thanks for sticking around for my second guest on this week's edition of America's First Warriors. Joining me now is Tech Sergeant Derek Duran. Derek grew up in Colorado and became an avionics maintainer initially, but then cross-trained into a paralegal position. He's currently stationed in his own backyard, Buckley Space Force Base. Welcome, Derek. Hey, Chief. Good morning. Thank you for having me today. Absolutely. I, I've got my cup of coffee with, and I know you're a, a coffee connoisseur as well, so we're going we're gonna to hit it hard this morning. You've got a long line of military service in your family. Your grandpa was in the Marines. Your dad chose the Army. How did you come to join the Air Force starting out here? Yeah, well, actually, Chief, uh, to be honest, I wanted to be a Marine. So uh, 18 years old, fresh out of high school, um, I went to the Marine Corps recruiting station, and uh, they were pretty much non-responsive. And so I, I kind of gave up on that for a bit. Uh, I didn't have a lot of direction when I was younger. I... Um, I was trying to find myself really. Um, sure. And then 
what really happened was my aunt, she married a, a cadet from the Air Force Academy. And uh, he had a long career, retired lieutenant colonel. He was a missileer, and he had a big impact on me. And um, I spent some time with him a couple summers, and he really led me to uh, join the Air Force, along with my father telling me, hey, don't join the Army. Don't, don't be a Marine, be an airman. So here I am today. You had some good influence there. Uh, I've uh, worked with a lot of people that have crossed in. Some of the, my happiest airmen at my base are recovering Marines and soldiers. So it's uh, it's a good place. I, I hope it's been good for you, too. It sounds like it has. It has. Absolutely. So you're, like I said in our intro there, you're serving kind of in your own backyard. You grew up in uh, Colorado, graduated from high school there. Uh, what is your, what's your tribal affiliation? Yeah, so my grandmother, um, she was born and raised on the Hickory Apache tribe, in, uh, tribal reservation in northern New Mexico. Um, and so that's my affiliation, um, uh, a quarter Apache. And then um, my mother has some Native American in her too. Um, but uh, so, yeah, Apache. Oh, Very interesting. Yeah, for sure. Um, how what was the influence that your grandma had on you while you were growing up? How did how did your cultural heritage shape you? Oh, my grandma had a, uh, a huge influence on me. Um, she was really a, a good friend to, of me. Um, she took care of me for a, a long time. Um, I uh, spent many summers with her, especially in my uh, my early years and then later in my teen years. Um, she was a very stern woman, and I, I think that came from a kind of a cultural background to the uh, Apache people are known to be very, very stern and, and very strict, but she was also really loving. Um, she babied me a lot, which may have been a good thing, may not have been a good thing. Um, but she always, and even my father to this day, um, they always emphasize toughness, um, mental fortitude, um, being a person of your word. So that uh, that's kind of the background that I had. That was really instilled to me is just you have to be tough. You have to be strong. A tough, strong, and then you used the word stern. And um, you've got four boys that you're you're raising, <laughs> and I'm sure that keeps you busy. Would they describe you as stern? Absolutely, I, I don't really think so. I think I'm um, I'm kind of the opposite with my boys. So I leave a lot of room for them to grow up and um, to to live the life that that they want to live within reason. Um, what I'm trying to do is I'm just trying to guide them so that they can follow their dreams and, and do whatever they want, whether they want to follow me into the Air Force or, uh, you know, if they want to join the Navy or the Army, that's okay too. Um, or if, if they want to go to college and, and do something great in college by being a lawyer or a doctor, um, I, I tell them all the time too, if, if that's not your dream, if you want to be a mechanic, if, if you want to be a janitor, as long as you're doing it to the best of your abilities, and you're crushing it every day, and you're being productive, and you're a good man. That's that's all that matters to me. It's a fantastic thing to pass along to them. And you've you've had opportunity on your own to kind of change paths in your own adult life, from uh, joining the Air Force at, in 2003, becoming a mechanic, and then maybe exercising a little bit more of the how should I put it the the other side of the brain on the paralegal side. Has that been a a difficult transition or was that pretty easy changing from a very hands-on career to a very uh, tech um, more paperwork based, I guess, more administrative. Yeah. I, I think the, the big change for me was the requirement to be organized and uh, I've come a long way. <laughs> uh, being a paralegal requires you to be very detail orientated and um, to really use your brain um, when it comes to, figuring out uh, what charges are appropriate for certain misconduct, um, where we are in court-martial process or non-judicial punishment process, um, just being organized and having all your ducks in a row so there's no issues later when we get down to the uh, appellate courts. So um, it's it's been a good change. I've enjoyed it. I do miss backshop avionics, though. Um, I'm not going to lie. It's... Uh, it's very rewarding to fix something and then to see it work right away um, where in the military justice field that I'm in um, sometimes that takes, it's a very long process before you see a reward. Yes, indeed. It, or, you know, reward or completion is it's 
that you don't go home at the end of the day necessarily with that feeling that this job is done or this task is complete. It just just sort of kind of continues, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about history and, uh, you know, somebody that you identify with uh, for some qualities uh, was Geronimo. Explain yes. why. Um, to start, sir, he was um, Native American war hero, um, part of the one of the from the Apache nations. Um, he uh, he lived a hard life, so uh, I found out that he was married eight times, and um, every every single one of his wives either was uh, kidnapped and enslaved or or died some terrible way. So he lived a, uh, he struggled. Um, he really, the things that he lived for and the things that he fought for were um, to carry on his ancestral way of living. So the Apaches were a, a nomadic tribe. They, they traveled around um, seeking, you know, the, uh, the fruit of the land. Um, hunting and uh, raiding was kind of their way of lives. And he refused to go onto the reservation. Um, as a matter of fact, the reservation that the uh, American government haven't had initially set for them was known as the uh, 40 acres of hell or hell's 40 acres. Um, and he absolutely refused that. And I, I can kind of relate to that as far as um, that fighting spirit that he had never wanting to settle um, standing up for what his beliefs were and uh, really defending his people's way of life. So yeah. I think that's something that uh, is instilled in all of us today, um, especially us that are serving. We are, we're here at service before self, and we're we're doing it for this country and for our citizens. And um, I really are. I am inspired by um, that warrior ethos that he lived out through his life. Absolutely, I've I've uh, asked a couple of the guests on this series uh, the idea that per capita, uh, Native Americans serve more in the military than any other ethnicity. Um, and that is an interesting stat. And you talk about the warrior spirit, the warrior ethos, and how you got inspired in that to uh, come and serve yourself and then your family lineage as well. Um, when you join the military, there's there's this idea that there's a standard and, and we all have to either look, act, uh, become somewhat the same, but we're all individuals underneath. How has being an individual and a Native American serving in the military, how's, how's that balance been for you? How have you found balance in that where you maintain your sense of self, but also conform? Um, I think it's always been a little bit of a challenge because growing up, um, strength and being strong and almost being a little bit closed off was emphasized in my life. Um, and so being able to to kind of expand who I am as a person to to be more social, to to open up and build those relationships, especially relationships now when it comes to me leading as a as an NCO and developing my replacements in the future and just helping airmen improve their lives and 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 really achieve their dreams and their goals. Um, that's required me to to soften up a bit. And uh, so it's been a bit of a challenge, but it's something that I've embraced. And um, now more than, more than even, even fixing aircraft or seeing a, a court all the way through a court martial. Um, my passion is really just helping airmen develop. It's, it's one of the best rewards of the job that we have, especially as non-commissioned officers is shaping that, that next generation. And we get to find our replacement. Um, You've been in for almost 20 years now, and uh, you're kind of in your own backyard. Buckley's your sixth military base, if I count it up right. You've been in Arizona, Korea, uh, Missouri, Lackland, um, Hawaii, and now you're, now you're home. So traveling, how have you kept your sense of cultural heritage throughout all of your travels? How have you stayed connected with your... your um, your Apache culture. Has that been I think it's really, it's really just about not forgetting where you come from. Mm -hmm. And I wake up every day and I'm thankful for my father who, uh, 
who's really uh, set a good example for me, and he's really embraced, embraced his heritage. Um, but no matter where I go, I know that, you know, um, my grandmother, even though she's gone, uh, the things that she's told me, things that my family, my grandparents have instilled in me, they live on within my heart. So no matter where I go, they're, they're with me and um, my heritage is with me. So, uh, and then it's about growing. It's about self-discovery and always looking back in the past and, and trying to learn more and, and um, this podcast and the ability to come share my stories actually it's kind of uh, set a fire in me to, to learn more about my, uh, my past. So it's uh, it's been absolutely fantastic to hear everybody else's stories and yours as well, uh, Derek, because I get to learn a whole lot. And, and when you mention people sharing stories is just one of the greatest things about where we serve and, and how we serve. Um, do you feel, are I asked, do you feel like you're home now? Are you, are you settling there in, in that local area? Is this, is this where the roots are going to take hold after you retire? Yeah, I believe so. Um, Colorado Springs is home. Uh, I grew up as an army brat. So my dad was in the army for 10 years, I believe. I believe it was 10. Um, we are stationed seven of those years in Pensacola, Florida. Um, and we came back home to Colorado Springs after he got out and uh, been here since until I joined the Air Force. But uh, this is home. My family's here. My wife's family's here. So it's it's nice to be back and then to just be able to settle down and look towards the future and um, my my kids have their family, their extended family now. So, it, you know, I got my tribe with me. We're That's happy. wonderful. Absolutely. And uh, like you said, you know, most of your kids are, they're a little on the older side, but you got a six-year-old as well. They're yes. gonna, they may not really remember too much about the military moving around um, way, the nomadic way of life that the military has and the nomadic way of life that uh, your cultural ancestors had as well. Do you feel like your six-year-old's going to miss something? I do. I do think he'll miss it a bit. Um, I think it's a fair trade-off, though. It's a double-edged sword. I mean, being here, having his extended family here, cousins, grandparents, that is a blessing. But also getting out and just experience new cultures, um, new areas, new ways of living, that's also a gift. Um, and I hope to be able to be in a position when I when I do retire and um, I enter the second phase of my uh, grown-up life. Um, I, I really do hope that we can still travel and um, ex- experience life outside of Colorado. Absolutely. And Colorado is lovely, by the way. Great place to be. Um, from the times that I visited, I'm, t- I'm talking to you from Minnesota, which we're getting ready for the snow to start falling here pretty quick. And oh. uh, <laughs> I know. It's, it's one of those great things about living in a snowy space, but... Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't That's mind uh, traveling is one of those things that feeds the soul a little bit and gets us out there and, uh, and learning a little bit more. Absolutely. Chief. I, I know, um, we are really missing Hawaii right now. So that was, uh, we lived the last four years in Hawaii. I was stationed at Hickam air force base and, uh, really a blessing. Um, really beautiful there. Uh, we left, I, I told my wife, I felt like I had a spiritual connection with the land and with the ocean. So very sad to, to see that go. Not a lot of surfing in Colorado Springs. No, not at all. <laughs> hey, we talked about a historical figure. Who else is an inspiration to you and why? Oh, well, my faith is a big inspiration to me, sir. So um, I would have to say uh, Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul, um, some of the great uh, men of the church in the past. Uh, but a, a really huge influence on me today, a modern influence, is David Goggins. How so? Uh, his story. So he was, uh, he really grew up in a, in a, a troubled home, um, a lot of domestic violence, um, a lot of issues with an abusive father. Uh, he also uh, joined the Air Force, uh, much like us. He uh, sought to be a, uh, a PJ, and he actually uh, flunked out because of his fear of the water. Um Got out of the Air Force, ballooned up to 300 pounds, was not living the life that uh, he felt that was meant for him. Um, so one day a switch flipped in his head and he changed. And yeah, now he is here, a former Navy SEAL, ultra marathon runner, um, 
his story is very inspiring to me. You know, there's a lot in there that just kind of screams, uh, I'm a resilient person. <laughs> to to go yes. through what he did and, and then just to come back, retrain. Uh, what a fantastically formed individual and how, how mentally strong he, he is. Absolutely. So knowing that and knowing that that's one of your inspirations and you've been, you've been doing a lot of traveling, you've cross trained, you've got, you know, a very, very busy family. What's really shaped your character and tested your character through your, your, uh, through your upbringing, through your military career and through your family. Has there been a big testing moment that's developed your resiliency? Yeah, absolutely. Chief. I think there's been a few moments. Um, I was actually pondering that this morning, uh, I think one of the big moments in my life that really tested my resiliency and who I was, was being a single father. So I was a, a single dad raising my son all alone from about 2006 to 2011. Um, that, that was really tough. I was alone in Arizona by myself, just me and my kid. And thankfully I had a good team with me at my, uh, at my shop there at Luke. Um, but it was very difficult. The, uh, the balance of, of being a single parent and then on top of that, the military commitments where, you know, you've got that the constant drive to perform and to excel. How did you get through that? Uh, you mentioned that you had a great team kind of supporting you around that, but that takes an internal um, sense of character and, and uh, to overcome that. How did you manage your own development and resiliency through that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think one of the big things was um, embracing the challenge to really grow and have this closer relationship with my, my son, Anthony, who's now 20, but uh, he's a great young man. Um, it was it was kind of him and I against the world, and I, I kind of embraced that challenge. Um, also leaned heavily on my faith and trusting that uh, God was directing all my steps and uh, just leaning on friends and, and family as much as I could. Um, really, I, I went into it. It was tough. Uh, my son had some, some issues. I thought he was a really difficult child. And then, uh, later on in life at around 2018, we found out that he, uh, was diagnosed with being on the, uh, autism spectrum and, uh, he's really high functioning, but he, uh, Asperger's syndrome syndrome. So, uh, uh didn't know the whole time I, I was a single dad dealing with him that we were, that was the issue. I'm glad we got him some help now, but that really explained a lot. But uh, yeah, that was going through a lot was going on in my life at that time. And I'm just thankful that I had good teammates and uh, a lot of good friends close to me. Absolutely. And, you know, now that now you mentioned you're developing airmen at work and you're leading folks as a as a non-commissioned officer. Sometimes those hard lessons as parents that develop our own resiliency in, in raising kids and going through difficult times we end up becoming better supervisors through that. Do you find yourself, you, you mentioned that you describe yourself at work as more of an introvert and maybe your grandma's sternness comes through there. Um, mm-hmm. But is, is that love and care for the folks that you're leading, does that come through? Yeah, I think so, Chief. Um, I'm very patient. <laughs> I've learned to be very patient and just uh, trust my team, trust the airmen that I'm leading that um, I've trained them properly and that everything's going to work out in the long run. Um, but I've been able to, uh, to open up with them and to just let them be the people that they're going to be and let their personalities come out and um, let their, their passions kind of drive the process and set them up in situations where not, not only are they going to succeed, but the, the mission's going to exceed using their specific skill sets and their passions. So, yeah. so I'm trying to do every day. I'm sure it's uh, it's rewarding to see that that own the the growth that you get to see from the uh, the younger folks that you get a chance to work with, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, are you going to miss that, or are you hoping to challenge yourself in that same direction when you eventually go on to your next career? No, I definitely will miss that, and that's not something that I'm ready right now to give up. So, when it comes time for me to retire. Um, I, I hope that I can still uh, have a job mentoring airmen in some capacity, whether that's as a uh, a court reporter or a 
civilian paralegal and legal office. Um, but but even if that's not a possibility and that, that doesn't happen, I'm still going to be out there in the community mentoring um, mentoring uh, youngsters and uh, doing what I can to kind of just uh, to make the world a better place. Yeah. Make, uh, One life at a di- time. Absolutely. Making a difference is one of the great things that we uh, we get a chance to do. And everybody kind of develops that sense of, and that spirit and wants to carry it on uh, even when our positions change. Um this podcast is a part of a series um, celebrating Native American culture during Native American Heritage Month. Why is this important, Derek? Why is it important that we celebrate Native American Heritage Month in our country? Yeah, I think it's very important because it's it's part of all of our history. Whether you are affiliated with the tribe through um, the area where you live or through your um, through your blood. Um, it's it's part of American history. I think it's important that we uh, that we don't shade over some of the uh, some of the ugly past, but also some of the good things that we've learned as uh, we're a very diverse culture. And I think um, just giving thanks and remembering uh, those people that have gave up uh, a lot in the past to be where we are is is very important. One of the the things that you mentioned is is that sense of history, both both ugly and and the positive contributions that uh, Native American culture has made to our uh, overall uh, culture and climate. Um, where where do we go from here? I, learning about one another is one of those things that uh, you know I'm I'm really passionate about, it and I think we learn really well from stories. What's what's some of the what are some of the stories that really can teach that you carry with you and would, would like to share? That's a good question. Cause I have so many, um, I would say one of the big stories is just not giving up. Um, when, when life is tough, when you're facing adversity, um, the worst thing you could do is pause and let, yourself be paralyzed with inaction and inactivity. So I, I like to look at the examples of the past of my family, um, heroes that I look up to, and uh, they inspire me to keep moving forward and to keep charging um, because I, I firmly believe that God has a plan for us. And uh, we're not meant to be stagnant in life, but we're meant to excel and exceed and uh, to live a positive lives that impact the world and that way, when we rest, we uh, when we come to eternal rest, we have no regrets. So that's that's really what I'm trying to do. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, hey, Derek, thanks so much for sharing your story, and uh, and thanks for the contributions that you're making, not just to uh, raising four good men, uh, good young men, but uh, also uh, the contribution that you're making to our uh, our great Air Force and the Space Force that you uh, you get to serve in as an airman. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity, Chief. It's been a a huge blessing and um, an honor. Well, it's been my pleasure. Absolutely. Uh, Folks, I hope that you uh, join me next week on our next edition of America's First Warrior Stories of Today's Airmen and Guardians. Thanks. America's First Warriors, Stories of Today's Airmen and Guardians was sponsored by the Indigenous Nations Equality Team, an Air and Space Force Barrier Analysis Working Group. Background research and subject exploration was accomplished by Master Sergeant Francis Dupree, Buckley Space Force Base, and the 133rd Airlift Wing's Podcast Development Team. Special thanks to Master Sergeant Lacey Roberts for her technical and cultural guidance and to Ms. Amy Lovegren of the 133rd Airlift Wing's Public Affairs team for her production expertise. Again, I've been your host, Chief Master Sergeant Mark Blakevold.